I met a guy yesterday when we were biking and he's like, you're a YouTuber, right? I think you were in tech back in the day. <laughs> hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Happy Thursday morning, everyone. This conversation is hot off the press, recorded like a few minutes ago. Direct to your earbuds. Things have been busy. This is our busiest month in business in like half a decade. So just everything's moving fast and this conversation included. Here's how this one came about. Today's guest is Noah Kagan, the founder of the OK Dork YouTube channel, which we're going to refer to in just a minute. But importantly, he founded AppSumo in 2010. And if you haven't checked in an AppSumo story lately, you're going to be amazed at how, I mean, blown away at how far they've come. AppSumo is the place online for software deals, discovering software tools, and increasingly books and courses for entrepreneurs. So do check out appsumo.com. Today's conversation comes directly from Noah's YouTube channel, where he speaks frankly about building wealth, and which I really appreciate how he approaches the topic with genuine curiosity and just transparency. So he put up this video a few days ago called 10 Surprising Things About My Richest Friends. And I was like, click, watch it. Nine minutes, 49 seconds. I got to the end of it and I was like, this needs to be longer. I got to hear more about this. It's so fascinating. So luckily, Sumo HQ is only a few miles away from my house. And we were able to sit down and have this conversation today and publish to you. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. This is a safe space for talk about unabashedly wanting to become wealthy, working hard for it. And you've been doing this in a, with a really unique take, I think, on YouTube. It's been awesome watching your videos. You were one of the few people that I have met through this online business journey that's actually better at making money than talking about making money. And I thought we could just jump into the premise of one of your recent videos. It's interesting watching how you produce your YouTube videos because I'm looking at your production document right now. Oh, yeah. And I really love how you guys are, you know, going back and forth about the titling of the videos. What have you learned about titling videos on YouTube? Some of the most impressive things just in general we think are really simple or extremely complicated. I think one of the best examples is Dropbox. Like you're like, oh, yeah, it's an icon. You put the thing in the folder and it's done. And then you don't realize like the amount of technical ability that needs to happen. So it's there everywhere. It's there quickly. Maybe it was reduced storage. There's just a lot of complexity. So the piece of software, Dropbox, in other words, it looks simple, but it's extremely complicated. Okay. And so with the YouTube, obviously, we're not at that level of sophistication. <laughs> but what I'm trying to, the thing I was trying to get across to a lot of people is the things that are professional and seem really impressive. Like Mr. Beast is a popular YouTuber uh, or Logan Paul, I guess, is a really famous dude. These people have teams between somewhere between 50 to 100 people. And they have dedicated like analysts on specific topics and things like and things like that, which I think as a consumer, where it's like, oh, he gets in front of a camera and he just like poops out something, and it's really great, right? And there's a lot more that that goes to it being a professional versus being an amateur. And I think that's kind of a theme I've really thought to myself. It's like, am I treating this like a hobby or am I treating this like a pro? So when we come up with a video, when you're creating content, the number one thing is your topic, your thumbnail, your title. Kind of same thing for a lot of these things. But I think what a lot of entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs do is they're like, I'm going to make the greatest book ever. Oh, title? Yeah, yeah, just put whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think especially with YouTube, like it's a content game and you have to get people to be in- interested in watching it. I think we've probably spent a lot more than most on the amount of thumbnails and titles. So we have a, a full-time thumbnail designer and then we spend amount of time like testing it. So we'll put it on Instagram. We'll put it on Twitter. We'll put it on like the YouTube community tab. And then, so there's a lot of iterations because then day, like that's, what's going to get someone interested in even checking it out. Very cool. Well, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, dude. And let's get into your list. How would you describe this sort of cohort of people in your head that you're thinking of while you came up with this list of unintuitive things that your rich friends do? So let me just tell you where it started. I was in Crypto Rico or Puerto Rico, I think is a lot of your audience calls it. (laughs) And I was pulling up to this guy's place. And this is a guy who was a customer of AppSumo. 
and he was trying to do all these startups and none of them really worked well. And then a few years ago, I was doing sumo charity bike ride and I had a $10,000 ticket where you could, I would go and ride with you and you'd party for a day and do all these cool things. And this guy bought it. I was like, oh my God. I meet up with him and I was like, yeah, you were a customer. I kind of remember you was like, yeah, you know, actually uh, I got rich off of crypto and like I gave up everything. Like I risked it all and it, and it worked. And so we've become good friends over the years. I was sitting outside his building in Puerto Rico and I was like, man, this guy rents a place. This is the exact where this kind of whole concept started. He rents this like three story penthouse with elevator and like, you know, it's got a waterfall inside of it, all this crazy shit. And I was like, it's kind of crazy. He rents it because I think our generation, I know from, you know, Pennsylvania, where I, as I grew up in California, my, our parents were like, you buy a house, you get health insurance and you stick with your job. doesn't matter if you like it. And I just thought that there's some things about these ultra wealthy that are a little counterintuitive that I think could inspire and help other people to increase their wealth. And so that's where, you know, this article came about. One of the interesting things is like just, you know, spending a lot of time with you and observing you is the network of people you surround yourself with is hyper successful, I would say. How conscious of you are that? How conscious, conscious. of that are you? How conscious <laughs> of that are you? Well, a month ago, and this is not to sound rude. I don't go out and be like, excuse me, what is your net worth? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I only, I don't only deal with the eight figure people because <laughs> I don't think I come across that way. I don't think I do. Maybe no. people might say I do. It's worth saying, I think, on behalf of a lot of the audience, I think it's cool that you're open about it because for a lot of folks, you know, growing up, I wanted to become wealthy and it's sort of a closed book, which is why I'm so attracted to this kind of content, essentially. The secret to getting rich is either being born into it, like I was. No, I was not. I was growing middle class or marrying rich and then divorcing them and taking half. Like that is the easiest way to get wealthy. What I've been proactive about is finding interesting people and then just really curating like who's doing interesting things, whether it's making a lot of money or not. And that it has ended up. It's like people like yourself who are like, you guys have been traveling the world. And so looking for people that are doing interesting things and have good energy. And so maybe what I've been good at is also removing or spending less time with people that are not that. And it has turned out they're also professionally done well, but it's not, that's not been an actual interest. But then also on the other side of that, how are you putting yourself out in the world so interesting people are coming to you? Right. Like I kind of got to know you guys a little bit because you're doing the, the podcast. Like that's how I, not initially how we, we connected, but definitely kept us in touch. And so it's like if people can be blogging, they can be YouTubing, Twittering, whatever that is, so that other people like minded will come to them. Cool. Let's jump into the list then. All right. Number one, this was the point that it inspired at all. Again, we're talking about counterintuitive things that very wealthy. Is it fair to say entrepreneurs like self-made wealthy people? These are all the people that these, and I'll tell you who these came from each story, but yeah, these are for people that are either eight or nine figure uh, entrepreneurs. Got it. All right. Because there is a difference. I actually don't know a lot of people who inherited money or who grew up rich because I grew up middle class. So most of my other friends were like pretty middle class. Number one, they rent versus own their houses. They are looking at return of investment versus the ego of owning. Yeah. Let's dig into this one a little bit. Yeah. Because I, I hear this all the time from... Real estate investors are always living in rented properties. I'll just tell you some specific examples. So there's a guy named Joe Lamont. No one knows Joe Lamont. He has a thing called ESL Investments in Austin, Texas. He's a multi-billionaire. Joe Lamont lives uh, at the Bowie in Austin, Texas. The Bowie is one of the nicest apartments that you can have. And so he actually ended up renting two or three apartments and paying to knock down the walls just so these apartments are connected. <laughs> But it was fascinating that he would rent and then do that. And so my friend who made, he's in, I don't know if he's a billionaire, but close to it from Ethereum. I asked him, I said, you know, you're a renter. He's renting in Puerto Rico. I was like, why would you do this? And he's like, let's just break it down, right? Like if I have this amount of money to buy at a place, like I could put that into Ethereum. Well, I think will be a better return. So why would I have a, take a worse return? Like that makes sense. And he's like, secondly, it provides flexibility. Like if I want to leave, I don't have to deal with anything. And it was kind of the first time, I think, in my one of the first times where I started realizing, like, oh, these people are thinking differently. Because I, I think probably for you and me, we were indoctrinated with our parents, like, you buy a house and that's where wealth happens. Where, and I think I'm honestly still in that mindset. Cool. Number two, they shut the F up. <laughs> Unlike the two of us, they aren't talking about it or growing their following. This is a theme we often talk about on the TMBA that. I rail at home because just walking around in, in, in everyday entrepreneurial circles, you realize that like 1% of us have a microphone in front of us and give a very skewed perception of what the 99% are actually doing. 
I always think about this when I look at all the real estate that's out there and I'm like, who owns all this? Right. And it's all the people that are probably a Burger King. You can't even tell. And there's just been enough experiences in my life. And I admire the people that are really wealthy that you just don't know. And they don't need that attention. But the ones that are really loud about it, they're like, buy my course. Like they have something to talk to you about it. Like you don't hear Elon talking about his wealth almost ever. He's using his attention to help hire people, right? He just put out a tweet about that. I just think everyone should be cautious about the people who are trying to brag about how much money they have or they're flaunting on their Instagram, like where they're going and things like that. Yeah, I mean, there often can be, and you know, Elon's a a counterexample, you're a counterexample. There's plenty of counterexamples, but as you get wealthier, there can be more and more downside to having more attention, right? I've been experimenting in the past years just sharing everything for the most part, like how much crypto I have and like the stocks I'm buying. I haven't experienced a downside, but if if I got hacked... If my security was threatened, I would start being more cautious about that. I'm also not selling things around it. I don't have courses. My income is not based on it. But I have found sharing exposes and educates other people, and it brings more people into my circle, which I can then say, hey, go check out AppSumo.com. But I, I love the people. I don't want to call them out. I don't want to say their names. But like, they don't want people knowing their name. They don't want people copying their strategies. So I think there's something for people to just think about again. Like, Am I spending my time tweeting and YouTubing? Is this really the best use of my time? Or is there something quieter? That can also make me wealthier. There's a lot of business strategies that don't benefit from a bunch of randos knowing about it. Yeah, I mean, it's just so funny because at the same time, like people love Wolf of Wall Street. They're like, that guy is huge. And a lot of people follow his stuff. And a lot of people follow these like, you know, Ty Lopez of the world and Grant Cardone of the world and, to- and even Tony Robbins of the world. And you're just kind of like, huh, these guys are showing their Lambos. They're showing their private jet trips, the damn Blazarians of the world. And the reality is like generally they're getting rich off you. Getting rich selling you their rich dream when uh, most of the richest people don't do that. Number three, most of them got rich doing just one thing. Meanwhile, we're all doing 100 projects. You said, I got wealthy just off of AppSumo.com. You tried so many freaking businesses, but you just ended up getting wealthy off of one thing your billionaire crypto friend did tell the billionaire crypto friend the billionaire crypto friend story is really interesting i can't tell you who he is because he doesn't want attention he doesn't want people copying or or, you know knowing it doesn't benefit him but what he did it i found out and it was it's insane it's literally insane is that he saw bitcoin it kind of came out and did pretty well and you're like oh shit so in 2013 when ethereum came out he's like wow this is like bitcoin but even more useful and so he sacrificed everything so he shared an apartment in san francisco he didn't buy new clothes. He didn't buy new shoes. He even like went to shoe repair just to get his shoes repaired. He didn't go out. He didn't go on vacations. It was a very extreme living, which I admired. And he said he put like, it was like somewhere between 80 to 90% of every dollar he could make into Ethereum for three years straight. And this was, and what time frame about? 2013 to 2016. And we can talk about this as number 10, like the extremes of it. But he basically went all in on that. And look, it could have gone to zero, but he had some level of confidence to generate that wealth. And then, you know, 2017, 2018, as that stuff exploded, it put him in, you know, eight and now nine, maybe even 10 figure worth. From an investor's perspective, that sounds insane, but it's not, we talk about all the time taking three years of your life and funneling it completely into one domain. AppSumo.com, TropicalMBA.com, whatever it is, that's sort of what it feels like. And then if it screws up, like in the case of the Ethereum guy, well, you got a great story at minimum. Yeah, yeah I mean, you then... didn't change your underwear very often. <laughs> but I, I guess my point that I'd, re- I'd like to encourage for everyone out there as well as myself is that if you look at even Warren Buffett, he's really rich. Everyone knows who he is. He really got rich. Do you know, do you know how he actually got really rich? Bring it on. Do you have an idea? No, I'm not clear. It's Geico. Geico is how he is rich, period. But he bought 50% of the company really early. And then he, the cash flow from Geico, plus the appreciation and the expansion of that business, all that is the money he took and bought all the other things. People that uh, explore the story of Nassim Taleb also tell a similar story. It was like one trade. And the key point is like, you just need to stay in the game and hit one homer or double. Yeah. I think where I would actually, it's not that I disagree with that. I think it's more of just like, what are you going to focus on? So I talked you know, to Warren Buffett, he focused on stocks and then he did find the one thing. So what is it where you're going to have a competitive advantage and focus on? So for me, it's been internet businesses. Like I've started a lot of different internet companies, like Facebook games, Facebook payments for games. 
software, you know, finally like AppSumo as a software marketplace for entrepreneurs worked. And so it's interesting because like, I don't know, maybe for a lot of people it's obvious, but you know, it wasn't to me that you've like failed more at internet business than a lot of folks who consider themselves to be internet business failures. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like, that's part of the process, but it hurts. And it's like tough to, sometimes it hurts. Oh, and you go you to know. therapy after this one day. <laughs> but I think the thing I would even clarify for people listening that I found fascinating that someone highlighted to me is that literally go and look at Forbes 100. If anyone's on their phone listening to this right now, go look at the Forbes 100. Every single person had one business that made it for them. And so the thing that I encourage a lot of entrepreneurs or people getting going, or maybe you're in the 100,000 level, you're not in the seven figure or eight or nine or 10 figure level is what is your active business and what is your passive business? And I think what people do a lot of early entrepreneurs is that they have 18 different businesses going and they're kind of all over the place. And it's like, just find the one that's doing best and just go hard on that. And so what I mean by that is if, if you're doing software and you're doing real estate and you're doing investing, people are trying to make all their money on all three. What I've found and what the richest people in the world do, they pick one, maybe it's investing, maybe it's real estate, or maybe it's software. And then they have passive stuff. That's that other piece, uh, not the other way around. And I think I even get that, you know, it's, it's, I get it twisted. I'm like, oh, this is so fun to do crypto. But it's like, with all the crypto stuff, if I just put that amount of time and attention into AppSumo, it would be a much higher return. Number four, they do investments to stay rich, but not to get rich. Unless you are a professional investor, which very few people can do sustainably for a long time. I absolutely love this one. Tell me what you saw that inspired this point. So if you guys don't listen, I don't know if you listen to Oswat Damodorn. He's an, an NYU finance professor. So his specialty is valuations. So he goes and does analysis on Airbnb, on Uber and these companies. And is like, it's clearly undervalued. I'm going to invest a lot of money in it. And so I sat down with him two months in San Diego and he's on YouTube. I highly recommend everyone watching his videos. And he has a blog where he posts his valuations. And I asked him about this whole like crypto stuff. And should I be buying more Tesla stock? It was when member Tesla stock had that like crazy yeah. run up and stuff. And this is what he taught me. And I thought it was a really interesting point. He's like, most of these people are gambling. And I, I call them Robin Herders. You know, all the people that are sheep following everybody else in Robin Hood. And I liked his phrase. It was like, you know, investing is to stay rich. It's not how you get rich. And most people, when times are good, are great investors. Anyone is. But if you've gone through, like I've gone through down cycles, 2000, 2008, and I lost money. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm not that good at this. So I try to reduce my amount of exposure in that. And then just maximize my professional time on AppSumo. And the same thing I think goes with investing where it's like, that's how you maintain your money. But to actually grow it, yes, when times are good, fine. But if it's not your full-time dedicated thing, I just think we're in a very scary place today where a lot of people are YOLOing and aping and tendies and going to the moon. When the reality is, is like getting rich overnight is not normal. I think people dream of it. Uh, but the reality is just go find some fucking work you like doing and do that for the next 10 years and you'll be just as rich, if not a lot richer. <laughs> I love this point. And, you know, you're just a spreadsheet away from putting whatever capital you have into retail investment opportunities and finding that it's better off to come to the table with something and try and maintain it and grow it sensibly rather than try to take a little bit and make it into a big bit. Well, I guess for anyone out there that's like, you know, hey, I've got 10,000 bucks to my name. Like I've always said like, shit, I wouldn't put it in the market. I'd put it in my own business and I would just make sure I have a business that's working. If we're not talking high, high six figures, I would invest that money in yourself. Like getting back your time, quitting a job, getting a business partner, focusing on a business. Hell yeah. If, we, if we're talking seven figures, then okay, you want to be a professional investor or spending more time on it or whatever, but whatever you spend your time on will do well in the long run, but you have to spend the time. I think what people are doing now, which is not what this is the disconnect is they're not spending any time. They're reading a few blog posts or a tweet and they're like, well, I'm going to go all in on this because my friend who's a friend said, this is going to go up. Yeah. I like that. It's legible. It's gambling. (laughs) It's deeply appealing as gambling is. It's less appealing to say, spend your time on it for 10 years for a lot of people. And those are the entrepreneurs, I suppose. It is, man. I mean, I would encourage anyone who's like, no, man, no, you're a freaking dinosaur boomer. Shut your mouth. Go spend all your money on it. Go bet on it and then do that. And I, what's going to happen is in one year, you're going to lose all of it. And then you're like, well, shit, what do I do now? And then they'll probably come listen to the episode and we're like, oh, how can I start a business? Well, you can start a YouTube business today. YouTube yeah. is the best business everyone could start if you have nothing to do. It's free hosting. They pay you and they bring you an audience. Like name another business that does that. 
If you run a growing seven or eight figure remote company, your next productive team member could be just one simple phone call away. Check it out. I'm running an ad for our own stuff. How cool. This week's sponsor is our very own done-for-you recruiting service for remote companies, courtesy of dynamitejobs.com. You can learn more at dynamitejobs.com slash remote dash recruiting. Our process starts with a simple, free, no obligation phone call with one of our senior recruiters and often the boss man himself. We'll get a sense for your company, your mission, the candidates you're seeking. We then go out and execute the entire job search on your behalf. That includes marketing to our database as well as taking a lot of the budget from the service fee and going out and proactively marketing your job to third-party sites, services, communities, and so on to ensure you get the best candidates for each individual job. Again, we know how to do all this stuff. We perform all the filtering, the interviews, and the assessments on your behalf. So basically, we're delivering you qualified candidates who are interested in your position, who understand your needs, and are looking to have that final conversation with you about you know whether or not it's a good fit. So obviously, hiring can be a total pain in the butt, but the team at Dynamite Jobs does this stuff every day. We understand remote-first businesses and have the systems and people in place do the job quick and reliably on your behalf. With our new done-for-you recruiting services, you can stay focused or your team focused on what you guys do best, and we'll take care of the hiring on your behalf. To learn more, head on over to dynamitejobs.com slash remote dash recruiting, schedule a call, or drop us an email, team at dynamitejobs.com. Okay, first interjection. I often thought that Although there's all so many variables out there that the thing that separates the people who make their own wealth versus those that don't is there's this com- common denominator of the amount of time you spend on that project. And then there's this classical wisdom that says, well, you know, no one's going to be on their deathbed saying, I wish I would have worked more. And so how, what do you think about that balance of, you know, yeah, if you shut down other parts of your life and focus on getting wealthy, you have a much higher chance of getting wealthy. I don't know if there should be a balance. <laughs> I think it's just find the things you really get excited about and go do them. I think what I've always encouraged myself and everybody else, especially the way I was raised, was that my mom hated her work so much. And so I just think people should be, people getting rich is really being able to spend your week the way you want for the rest of your life. That's rich, right? right. Like if you want to go travel, if you want to go on a boat, if you want to go fly somewhere, if you want to go work in Vegas or go to Boulder, which we're, hopefully we're going in August, I was already talking about it today. <laughs> that's rich to me. And so... It doesn't necessarily require a lot of money. No, it doesn't. It requires very little. But what I encourage people is just find the thing you want to work on for the next 10 years. I think the problem that most people have, they do jobs or things they hate and they don't get wealthy and it doesn't work out and they've spent the time on it. So just find the thing that hopefully it makes you a lot of money and you enjoy it. And then you can do that for, I think the things that I've seen is it takes 10 years to get rich. So just find whatever activity you enjoy and do that for 10 years. And if it's like art and you don't care about the money, that's okay too. Just make sure you can make enough to live the life that you want to live. You mentioned that one of the keys to getting wealthy is also to not need the money in the first place because you're going to need to have some lean years in order to discover what what that wealth vehicle is going to be. Yeah, I mean, I was looking over my tax returns because that's what I do in my spare time. I mean, I went at Mint.com 2007 making 100000 a year. You know, I had 1% equity in this company that I was going to sell really well. And I left that to make, I think, $40,000 next year, right? And then the next year to that I made 70, and then I made 100, and then I went back down to 40 and 40, and then eventually back to up to 70. And keeping that cost of living low, it meant I could do the work I really wanted to do. And that eventually led me to be able to start AppSumo without having to, oh, I have to go make money to pay rent or buy, pay my mortgage and things like that. So like prioritizing your work quality over your level of consumption, essentially. You know, that, that's been a whole different discussion. But yeah, for most of my 20s, I lived very cheap. I lived in my, my aunt's basement. I lived in my mom's house. I lived on couches for a year when I could afford to, to rent. And it just kept my cost of living low. So I didn't feel as like burdened to have to go make money, which led me to finally end up making a lot of money. I just don't want people to go work at Intel or some, work for some shitty company or start some shitty company they don't even like. And then it doesn't end up working out. Like, why not waste your time on something you actually enjoy? Number five. They are not smarter than most people who aren't rich. They're just willing to suffer more and put in the time. Suffer? Suffer through what specifically? I think what it's interesting if you meet, like if you, I've met Bill Gates, I've met Mark Zuckerberg, I've worked for both of them. 
they're smarter than us. They're like objectively geniuses. But a lot of wealthy people are not much smarter. Like you meet me, you're like, yeah, I'm pretty much smarter than Noah, <laughs> like, which is fine. But I think I've been willing to like make less money or have to put myself out there and ask for things more often than other This people. is one of the things you emphasize a lot in your teaching is like, tell us about the coffee thing at Starbucks. Yeah. So coffee challenge, which is you just go to any place to buy anything. But if you go to a coffee shop or get tea, you ask for 10% off and it's a little bit uncomfortable and you get rejected and then you realize it's okay and you keep going forward. Why do you think it's important? I think it's important because you can get what you want out of life because you can start asking for the things you actually want. I was reading one of my favorite books all times yesterday. It's called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years by Donald Miller. And he actually even said in his book, I thought was beautiful. He's like, the more you ask in life, the more there's fear, which also creates then an ultimately better story of your life. And I was like, that sounded nice. I just noticed for myself, if you can ask for things, like that's what business is at the end of the day. I think it just kind of puts more color to the black and white of life. You're like, oh, I asked for something. And sometimes one out of 10, it works out. And you're like, oh, that was actually kind of cool uh, that I didn't expect. And so, yeah, these people just suffer more. They're not smarter than you. I think the bigger point I want everyone to, to listen to this they're not smarter than you. They're not better than you. They're willing to put in the work and sacrifice a little bit more. They're not going out on a Friday. They're not going partying on a Saturday. They're maybe waking up a little bit earlier to accomplish things that they actually want, but they're not smarter than other people. But Mark Zuckerberg is smarter than Definitely, you. Definitely, 100%. Can you give us one anecdote or sense for what sets him apart from your average entrepreneur? I mean, dude, realistically, it was like 15 years ago that I, you know, I worked one-on-one with him. So it's been a while. But even at that time when he was 24, just the way that he approached things, I think two things that I would say that Mark did exceptionally well in terms of knowledge, he just had a big vision. Like he thought a lot about where this was going. Like he kind of started it out and he did, you know, Wirehog and he did Facebook. And he, but he had this like kind of, he eventually came to the conclusion like, oh, wow, this can be the biggest thing in the world. And I think most entrepreneurs have very small visions, including my own. So that was number one. I think more people could do better and learn from him and same with Gates. And I think what the other piece is that he spent a lot of time thinking. I remember I'd look him at his desk and he was like reading a book or like journaling. And maybe he was just like drawing pictures. <laughs> but like he was thinking. And I think a lot of us, we open our computers and then we get on Twitter and we, we're just kind of going. We're not really like thinking or processing. And I think there's more, the, he spent more time on that than most people. Point number six, none of them are selling courses. None. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. Maybe it's also just the people I admire are not rich selling courses. Okay. You've spent some time taking down online gurus or at least. Yeah, I've talked shit about like Ty Lopez and Grant Cardone. A lot of their stuff, it sucks. I mean, you could go to different restaurants and I could hate the food and other people could like it. So I try to be mindful of that. Just it's not my, my cup of tea. I think the more the, the wealthy people I admire, my eight figure, my nine figure, my 10 figure friends, They've created stuff. They've created it. It's not them selling a course about how they're going to go do these things. So like David Hauser, who I just talked to from Grasshopper, like he created software, worked on it for many years, didn't make a ton of money, and eventually sold a company, made a hundred million bucks. Yeah. Uh, same with the Ethereum guy. Like he's not selling courses. Same with AppSumo. We're not selling. We've sold courses and it's done okay for us, but it's not how we got wealthy. Right. Or not how we got, I would say, successful as a business. So it's not that I say I would discourage people from courses per se, but I think it's more these aspirational people that we maybe admire, maybe like double check that. Yeah. And the the thing for me that matters is like the information about a space is purely an abstraction of the space. And so the folks that are creating information on how to make money on the internet or whatever, it doesn't properly represent how people actually make money on the internet. So one of the things I drone on on this podcast about all the time is like why you need to go to the room. You need to like talk to the people directly Hmm. and figure out what's going on rather than like Google it and see what Google has to say about it. I think what's crazy, honestly, like even on YouTube now, like most of these people on YouTube are poor and it's not that that's bad, but it just means you should be mindful about why you're listening to them because eventually they're probably going to sell you their course or some affiliate shit that sucks. And in that addition, there's so much information uh, online today to like find out things is really easy. You can find out, I mean, you can literally YouTube, like how to do real estate, how to do software, how to do like any type of business out there. And so I think learning this stuff is almost not as hard now as actually just putting into action. But I think the lazy, easy thing is like, well, I'll just bet it all on some random ass crypto coin and hopefully I'll be rich so I don't do the work. And the reality is that's just like not the case. Well, there's also this idea that you're willing to trust things that are outside of your domain of knowledge a little bit better. I won't be able to insert it because we're not editing this episode that much, but Michael Crichton 
I think it might be named after him. It's called the something something effect, but it's this idea that like, if you open up the entrepreneurship section of the newspaper and you read it and it's like, you've read these like ink magazine bullshit articles and you're like, that is so untrue. This is such bullshit. And then you like flip the page and you start reading about the Syrian crisis or whatever. And you're like, Oh man, there's some shit going on in Syria. And you like assume that the journalist that's writing about Syria knows what's going on. Cause you don't know much about that conflict. But when you're reading about your own domain of expertise, it's like a poor representation of your experience. And that's what resonates with me about this point. Number seven they got lucky with great parents and likely born in great neighborhoods. This isn't always the case, but more often than not. Yeah. I mean, let's just, let's just do extreme. Like, let's talk about the top five richest people in America. So who are some of the richest people in America? Gates. Gates. Zuck. Elon. Is Elon American yet? South African. Probably Buffett. Maybe Ellison. Buffett grew up with a dad who was a stockbroker in Omaha, Nebraska, in a really healthy family. And Buffett himself is the one that kind of inspired this. Buffett is literally, if you watch his videos, he'll say, I am the luckiest person on earth because I was born in America to these parents. Zuck came from an extremely wealthy family in the East Coast. He went to one of the number one private schools called Exeter, I believe, on the East Coast. Gates' dad is a judge, William Gates III, crazy rich. Uh, Grew up very influential all throughout Seattle and Washington. Jobs, grew up in Cupertino, California, where I'm from. He was adopted, so I think he had a little bit of an edge on that, uh, but had a good family. Grew up in technology around. I mean, if you think about my same story, I'm not where Jobs is, but like I was grew up down the street from him in technology, in Cupertino, where all this stuff happened. Like, what would have happened if I was born a different race, maybe somewhere in the Midwest? Let's just pick Iowa. Not knocking Iowa. Shout out Iowa. Like, my whole thing could have been different. So if you don't have that going, what might you take away from that point? There's a couple of things I've been thinking about. Yeah, I'd love to hear your point. Well, because you're always tr- trying to reach out to different groups. Because is this, is, this point for me is essentially you're the average of your five closest friends. And it's this idea of like, well, often that's a decent heuristic for what sort of language you speak or what sort of you know cultural mores you follow. And I heard a quote the other day that was essentially like, you know, language is the key to access. And so you ever notice like, when you're you're speaking with someone, like you can kind of tell, oh, they don't quite know what they're talking about, but they're sort of, they're pantomiming like that they do sort of. And so you're like, okay, well, I'm not going to let them into that thing then. Does that make sense? And so I wonder if like there isn't like this heuristic of your five closest friends or of your fluency in speaking a different group's language um, will ultimately potentially gain you access to that group like that. you can be from iowa and rock up to san francisco <laughs> but if you don't speak the language they're not going to let you in it could be the language thing i think what i was trying to encourage is on one side of the table if you're from somewhere like i'm from just be gr- more grateful about it and there is work involved so it's not discrediting my work but it's also being grateful that i was born to these things i had good parents all this stuff everyone can change their geography it's not easy if you have a family or if you don't have money but everyone can go to where there's more money Everyone can go and put themselves in San Francisco, in LA, in Austin, Texas, in Denver, in Miami, where if if you're in tech, which I'm interested in, go to those places. The other thing is like, what else can you do to put yourself around those people? Like you can get on Twitter and start commenting on these people's stuff and start helping them out in different ways. Yeah, I've been watching these, there's like little swarms of folks popping up around different elements in this new economy of crypto. It's, It's not just speculating. I'm a little bit of a believer that this is sort of joining a group that talks about the potential of decentralized finance and truly understanding that language and how it could potentially affect all of our businesses. You don't have to move to San Francisco anymore to do that. Everyone can be a part of the pseudonymous community online that speaks a language around a potentially very exciting new technology. So that's pretty welcoming to outsiders relative to maybe what the last wave of San Francisco startups was. I would just try to figure out how to put yourself in a winning place. If you can be on the bench for the, you know, Golden State Warriors, or if you can be on the bench for the Yankees, even if you're on the bench, you're going to be you're, you're a championship person. Can you create a WhatsApp group? Can you join a Slack group? So like I'm in a, in a WhatsApp group with a bunch of millionaires. And I will say it's fucking helpful. There's people that are like, hey, which lawyer should you use? Hey, how do you do this taxes? Hey, here's some crypto tokens. And like I post things that I have no idea about. And they're like, this is why it's very stupid. 
And I'm like, thank you. And then they'll also be like, hey, here's what we're all doing. And I'm like, okay, I'll kind of copy these people that are spending their time thinking about that. And so I think I'm just trying to encourage people, like if you were born with less advantages, like how do you get more chips on the table to make it easier for you to succeed? All right, number eight, they give back, but less proportionately. You mentioned that you give around $30,000 of your annual income to charity, but percentage-wise, it's smaller than most lower income earners. So if you, a common way to give back would be to tithe at a church, for example, 10%. You're basically saying that your hyper-wealthy associates aren't quite broaching the 10% figure. Yeah, I mean, I think about this a lot when I think about like panhandlers at like, you know, at, at traffic stops. Do you ever, like, next time you do it, notice who actually gives the money. It's generally the person who's, like, in a real crappy-ass car, which could be a very wealthy person, too. But generally, they're probably not, would be my assumption. And they're the ones giving a lot of the money to that stuff. They're more empathy or compassion. Yeah, a lot more. And they're, like, you know, I think people like my parents who've worked their asses off to make some money. And they're like, I worked hard, and these people can work hard, too. And so that's a longer discussion about morality and, you know, compassion in our society. The thing I was trying to just encourage myself is like, keep giving. If, if you have more to give, like one of the things I've really tried to do is like, if I have more to give in the past few years, like give more. And if you need help, ask. And so I'd say the, the strategy that's worked for me is I do subscriptions. So I try to subscribe to different charities that I already like, and I just add subscriptions. So if it's five bucks a month, and then I go back after a year, and now I do 10, and it's just on autopilot. So I think that's one thing that's been cool because it kind of just is an automatic as my wealth grows, like my charity grows because I go back and increase the subscriptions. Second thing that I, I'm not, I don't do, but it's something I want to consider more of is like, how do I give time? Because giving charity is easy. It's very lazy. Donating money is, is easy. Whether it goes to somewhere good is a fucking debate too. Yeah. But giving time is, that's our biggest asset, all of us. So it, it's something we probably want to be more, probably reflect and be more mindful in the future. So it's just something I was thinking about around myself having money and my other wealthy friends. It sounds like something you're doing, but maybe you're indicating that they're not reflecting too, too much on this or going more the foundation route or. I was talking to my friend who's worth, I don't know, maybe he's worth like 20, 20 plus million. And I was like, do you have any charities? Like, no, nah, I don't care. Just it's interesting mindsets. I think if you're on the lower end of some of these wages, you have more compassion for these other people, which is honestly probably something that we could all benefit from. Number nine, lots of ways to get rich are boring. <laughs> yeah Ian reminds me of this one all the time yeah because i'm always like the neophyte guy with like i love the new ideas <laughs> we dude we all do we all do <laughs> we all i mean every entrepreneur thinks their next idea is going to be their big idea there's one story that always stuck with me when i was 23 i went to new york and i was dating with jennifer and this is a friend of hers and we go up into this building and i remember i've been to new york once before and i remember how expensive it was I literally had a place that you open the door to the toilet and that's also your bedroom. Like that was, it was all in one, but we go to this fancy place we go all the way up the elevator and we walk down the corridor and we go into this insane apartment and it's huge and it's insane. And I go to Jennifer and I was like, so what does this guy do? And it turns out his parents sold lighting. And that, that always stuck with me that the flashy, right? Like I'm making cars, I'm going to Mars, like, you know, the Elon Musk's of the world and a little bit more of the extremes. But kind of to the earlier point of the people who aren't talking about it, it's also like a lot of ways to get rich are boring and just selling lights. Why is that? Because it's not as sexy for a lot of people to go do it. Like think about like waste management. Like does do people want to do it? No, but there's a lot of money and stuff like that. Do people want to be, you know, maybe flipping cars or doing like plumbing? Like one business, like I think it's interesting in terms of we do videos on YouTube about business ideas. There's these new industries that are helping create more like electricians and plumbers. So they're creating schools to educate them and then actually taking some of their salary until they make their money back for paying for the education. It's like, honestly, being a contractor right now in America would be a very lucrative job. So there is a, a little tiny trend of, you know, guys who've cut their teeth on scaled internet businesses kind of flipping back and taking that structures thinking and applying it to these kind of contracting services businesses. Totally and you can, you can roll them up, you can optimize them, you can you know, use contemporary staffing mindsets to make them more efficient. And it's not really the sort of business that you're going to get. Your competition is not going to have the same pedigree as you. It's one of the things we noticed when we were competing in the valet parking niche. Unfortunately, in retrospect, a niche, you know, we started to find ways to get out of it, but maybe a little small, but we found that our competitors just didn't have 
the knowledge that we had about marketing, especially even production, we were the only ones producing overseas. Justin Mayers, he's a pretty popular entrepreneur in Austin. He used to work at AppSumo and he's gone on to start a soup company, Kettle and Fire, which is a pretty popular soup company. And I like went to him one day and I was like, yo, why are you doing soup? He's like, dude, my biggest competitor is Campbell's. Like, does that sound scary to you? I'm like, not at all. <laughs> He's like, yeah, they, it's, it's, and you know, they've grown a hundred million dollar business in a few years because they've picked a giant industry. That's also, it's I guess kind of sexy, but it's also, it's a slower, more boring industry that it's easier to win in. But I think a lot of us get, including myself are like, oh, let's do email marketing. Let's do the industries that have the most competition. All right. Number 10, the final point. Da, da, da. They can go to extremes in what they believe in. Yeah. I mean, I think they just bet all in. That that specifically came from the Ethereum guy, where he told me that for three years he didn't do anything except buy Ethereum. Yeah. And I think the same thing goes with AppSumo.com. Like, for a few years, like, maybe about four or five years, I didn't get paid almost nothing. And, like, every dollar we had, we'd put back into growing the business. And then when we found things that were working, like giveaways, as an example, at AppSumo, we built giveaways and it, like we did Dropbox for life. When we found that that worked, like we basically ran a giveaway a week for the next like months. I don't know how many months, like Netflix for life, Evernote for life, Photoshop for life. We're still paying for them like eight years later. And so it's just finding things that work. I think they're more willing to, co- to go all in in like 10X or it's funny, even Chad lately, we launched AppSumo. Who's Chad? Chad's my business partner. At AppSumo. Yeah. And so Chad was funny. We were talking about AppSumo Marketplace. It's our thing where people can buy and sell things for other entrepreneurs it's and it we do about a million dollars a month in payouts to creators that's amazing so i think for people that are starting businesses or want to sell things to other entrepreneurs like i think it's the number one opportunity today what would be a a way a listener of this podcast could make money off of your marketplace like design something specific to is there like a inside information you can give us about how to exploit the marketplace 100 okay well let me tell you what chad said which i thought was interesting is that he's like marketplace went from zero to a million dollars in revenue probably about four months, which mm-hmm. is very fast. And he was like, how do we 50X this? Smile, right? I was like, dude, this guy fucks. I'm gonna, I, gotta, I gotta say it right there. You gotta edit that. <laughs> Leave that in. <laughs> and uh, I think that's just a mentality of some of these wealthy people, Chad included, that are thinking much bigger. And they're thinking like, this is working. How do I like 50X it, not 10X? So in terms of the, the audience thinking about how to take advantage of the marketplace, I would go look at what's already popular on AppSumo and see like, is there variations or things I can replicate around that? If you're not a software developer, which I don't know what the audience mixes, but if you're not software development, I think there's a few different options. There's templates. So like spreadsheets, there's templates for like, like marketing templates and things like that. There's icons. And then there's like books and courses. So I'm not saying you're going to get rich off of it, but what I would recommend is go go to AppSumo. This is what I do a lot of times. Well, if there's if the software is hot, there's bound to be services that you could fire up as well, that's right? A great idea. It's like, oh, I didn't know people were paying so much money to get X done. That's and a great like, idea. that's something I could do with a bunch of spreadsheets. So maybe I'll just do it until I can prove my worth to a CTO eventually. That's get great. a CTO. And it's almost like a stock market Love for it. software, right? You can kind of see what's what's working a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you can go to AppSumo and look at most recommended. And actually, an interesting idea that you suggested is go find the most popular and then create videos or books or courses on how to use the most popular software that's that's being sold on AppSumo. Then you become like an acquisition target for the software company. You could like, you know, market yourself as someone who could work for them as a high paying marketer in-house or they might acquire you or... 100%. And... You know, this isn't even, I've seen this done to serious results. Like, you know, a lot of software companies, the reason they come to AppSumo is because you help with marketing. They're coming to you because they need help with marketing. They need help with marketing. You could help with them with marketing too. If I had no money, I was just starting out, that's what I would focus on. The other things I would probably do is like, what stuff is trending right now? And how do I create content that I just put on the AppSumo marketplace for $7? Kind of like Kindle, right? Mm -hmm. But AppSumo is built for entrepreneurs and we have over a million people a month to check out the store. And so I would say like NFTs, crazy hot right now. So I would go and just like look up whoever the experts on NFTs and aggregate that into a PDF and put that as like the starter guide for NFTs for entrepreneurs. I would probably do that around other trending, whatever else is trending. So like YouTube is kind of popular right now. Shopify is still relatively popular. Crypto is popular. And make guides, educating people on trending topics. The other thing you can do is what's selling really well on Amazon? That's not on AppSumo. So is there any book topics that are like top sellers? Marketplace arbitrage. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I would go copy their book because that would be legal and we wouldn't have it on the site. But it's like if Tim Ferriss's book is popular, make a modern version of like, how do you start an online business and actually make it and make a book or course or something, even if it's templates around that, because you already know it's popular. I think too many times people are starting businesses that are like, well, let's just see what happens. So take things that are popular on other places and then replicate them for AppSumo. It's harder to be smarter than an existent cash flow. It's like actually seeing that cash move in the world. There's so much intelligence wrapped up in it. A lot of times what works is you can take like an old way of monetizing to a new cash flow. Go on. So for example, if you see like all these NFTs uh, popping off, they're going to need like all the traditional products and services that any other company would need. So it's like, hey, we're the name, insert your business service or product that, but we really understand NFT. We really understand whatever. And that's a, that's a decent way to get a cash flow cooking as well. All right, Noah. So we went over 10 counterintuitive observations that you have about your, some of your wealthiest friends. Um, appreciate that. Is there any sort of parting shots, like advice you have. Most of the listenership owns a business, but I would say that, you know, a lot of us got in the game because we were motivated away from wanting to have to work for somebody else or being constrained in terms of our time and our location. This episode, I think is about thinking bigger and looking up to folks who've really made incredible things. What sort of advice do you have for the listenership? Let me just only give two, because sometimes I try to give a bunch to hopefully that one is one is good. And that's why I do that. But I think I was thinking about you guys doing valets and you did like cat stands or cat. Cat furniture. Yeah. Yeah. Classy stuff. Oh God. So I think what's interesting to consider whatever you're working on is like how big that market is, because it's the same amount of work, whatever size the market is. So you're doing valet and cat stands. Like how many cat stands and valets can you actually sell? The biggest that could be maybe is like a $20 million business, but you can put that same amount of work onto something that could potentially be bigger. So I would just be mindful of what's our opportunity cost. So for example, we have AppSumo, we've done sumo.com, we've done HallDrop, we've done MeetFam, KingSumo, SendFox. And at the end of the day, it's like, well, which one's working, which is AppSumo? And then the market size for software is billions. So just being mindful of that. And I'd say the second thing is, I think Dynamite Circle is an amazing organization. And as well, it's like, who is surrounding you? So I'd say the large part of the success specifically with, let's just take AppSumo is because I have Chad, who's a technical genius and pattern matcher. And then I have Andrew Chen, who is just like strategically and vision wise, like one of the most gifted people I've ever been around. And then I have Eamon, who's one of the best operators in the world. And Eamon is the CEO. Eamon is the CEO. Andrew's an advisor. And Chad is the CTO now slash head of product of AppSumo. So you have a high standard for who you surround yourself with. Yeah. I mean, I think I'm the low standard around them. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I think the point I'm trying to make is like, how can you surround your business besides you have dynamite circle and maybe you post a question on the forum and you get an answer, but like on a regular basis, like on a weekly basis, how can you surround yourself with basically just like these unbelievable all-stars in different areas that complement you? So like my expertise is marketing and starting. And so at this point, that's not as helpful to the business, maybe marketing a little bit. And so how do you have more of that around you on a regular basis? And I think that would benefit anybody who's a business owner today. There's been a, a concept that's brought up, been brought up a few times recently on the show. It's like, is it a who question or a what question? You know, a lot of times I'm sitting there like puzzling about something outside of my expertise in the business. And it's like, I don't true. need to figure out what the problem is here or how to solve it. Like, I just need to figure out the person who has demonstrated repeatedly yeah. that they crush when it comes to this problem and get them involved somehow. I mean, I would just say without Andrew without Eamon, without Chad, like having these people regularly involved in the business, like probably be like a maybe six figure company. Like Andrew's the one that when I was doing this company started up soon, I was doing bundles. It was like deals with, but like five, you get five tools for one price. And he's like, why don't you separate those out? And it sounds obvious now you're like, yeah, of course. But at the time it didn't, it wasn't as clear. And it was just like that continually from someone like him has just produced honestly millions of dollars for all the people in the company and for our partners, plus, you know, awesome products for our customers. What is it about Andrew's perspectives on what you were doing in those early days? Like, how did he have access to it and you didn't? I don't think he's in the weeds of it. And he also, he was less emotionally attached to some of these things. So 
early on, he basically brought me a spreadsheet. He's like, here's what you're doing today. If you went from bundles to individual deals, like you would literally forex the business, which we did. That was 10 years ago. Six years ago, Andrew said, why don't you open up the marketplace? And instead of hiring a sales team, which we did, now you can have a sales team of hundreds of thousands of people. And so six years later, we finally opened the marketplace and now it's exploding. And so we basically, I listened to advice six years later is, is what I'm telling him. I always apologize for that. But having someone around that has just like a different perspective, a different vantage point, And he's not in the weeds. Like he checks in with us once a month. Lately, he's been encouraging. He's like, you need to go find these people that have like already done the the things you need to do. Like, why are you trying to solve it yourself? You have money. Go hire like the best marketer in the world. So CMO, VP of engineering, and some of these other roles is like, just go find the people and put up half a million dollars, pay for it, and you'll get the money back. So that's kind of the the more recent thing he's been pushing. He's like, you guys can be a billion dollar business. You just need to have billion dollar people around you. What does it mean to be emotionally attached to your business? I think there's moments where you, you're keeping people on that aren't really ROIing. So I, sometimes I think one of the good thoughts for different business owners is like, if you were to sell your company to a private equity or to someone else, like how would they run it? That's how to run it without emotion, which is ultimately probably best for the business. But as a, as a humans, we're not robots yet. Because you're dealing with people and you're dealing with like, you know, not binary things. Right. And you can always make that choice to make a little bit less for to get another value out of your business as well, of course. That's why I think we haven't fundraised because I think it would I think it would change the way we'd have to approach things. Like I'm okay not making as much as possible or being as big as possible uh, for having people I like around or for doing things that I'm like, okay, I just think it'd be more interesting. Right. I think we're we're getting more into that world. But I like that Andrew's perspective. And I think that the question I said was great. Like if you sold your business, how would they run it? And probably think about like what how big is that delta between what you're doing and they're doing and seeing where you can Uh, match some of those things up that's really cool Noah Kagan thanks for coming by the pod thanks to Andrews hey thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast you can go to tropicalmba.com get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies load up your iPod that is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight we will see you next Thursday morning 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.